Welcome to KUOW's Speakers Forum. I'm your host, John O'Brien. In this episode, yes, you were promised a jetpack. Your disappointment around that may still sting, or you may be more concerned about global warming, or a robot taking your job, or finding affordable housing, or you might be reasonably concerned that the digital revolution will leave you somewhere on the global trash heap of history. A new book will help you find out what's happening now and next in technology, and maybe how to stay ahead of the curve. Andrew McAfee and Eric Brynjolfsson are researchers at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. They've authored a series of books together, the latest of which is Machine Platform Crowd, Harnessing the Digital Revolution. They spoke with Microsoft computer scientist Ramez Nam at Town Hall Seattle on June 22nd. Thank you to Sonia Harris for our recording. Regular listeners, please note, this is one of those events where it sounds like maybe seven people attended. You may have really wanted to be there, so enjoy this mind-blowing tour through a landscape of constant development and major imminent change. From the core to the crowd, the power of organizations, to that of individuals in a brave new economy. Hello, everybody. I'm Ramez Nam. Uh, many of you know me, and it's an honor and a pleasure to be here with my friends, Andrew McAfee and Eric Brynjolfsson. And uh, we were just talking backstage. It was three and a half years ago we met on this stage. We met. Yeah. The friendship was initiated here at Town Hall in Seattle. It's, it's fantastic to be back. I'm serious about that. Hopefully yeah. you guys <laughs> make some friends tonight, too. Yeah. And it was because we were talking about your previous book, That's The Second right. Machine Age. So what's happened in the three and a half years since the second machine age? <laughs> Nothing much. Yeah, <laughs> business is usual. Well, I mean, the, the main thing that happened, and, and it's a little bit embarrassing, is that tech progress continues to surprise the two of us, even after we wrote a book about surprisingly fast tech progress. Just, just weird things keep happening. And Eric and I kind of looked at each other at one point and said, hey, this continues to be extremely interesting. We continue to be extremely fascinated by this, and there's just more and more story to tell. So we, we went back out and talked to our favorite alpha geeks and wrote another book. And the other half of it is, yeah, tech is happening faster, especially in the areas of machine learning, but also the rise of these platforms, and, and the, the core and crowd is a new thing we didn't really talk about before in the other book. But the other thing that is the disappointing half of it is that our organizations, our institutions are not keeping up. If anything, uh, that's turned out even worse than we would have anticipated yeah. three and a half years ago. So there's this, this mismatch, and we were hoping to try to do something, not to slow down the technology, right. but to speed up our, our adaptation to it. Right, so Second Machine Age was really a book about the impact on society of these changes, and this is a book about how organizations can try to keep up with what's happening. Is that fair? Yeah, that's a nice way to yeah, think about yeah, it. More exactly. So you have these three words in the title, machine, platform, crowd. Why don't we take it from the bottom? Like, can you walk through like crowd, platform, machine, what these all mean while you're talking about them? Now you're really throwing us off here. But yeah, okay. yeah. I said, Andy was joshing me that I, I didn't want any prep. We're just going to get up here on stage. So I said I'd try to throw them some, some harder ones to try to confuse them all. But we weren't expecting a crazy curveball like that. Like, we're very used to going machine, platform, crowd. We're, the we're, we're deer in headlights with this. Um, you, what, the way we're framing the book is in terms of three th rebalancings or re pretty deep rethinkings that need to happen within organizations. And with crowd, um, we counteroppose the crowd, which is literally these hundreds of billion, millions of random weirdos out there on the internet, 
with the core, with, with what organizations think they're really, really good at. And we kept on coming across these crazy examples of what organizations thought they were really, really good at. The instant you give them an honest head-to-head -head comparison or competition between what their core can come up with versus what the crowd can come up with, the crowd eats their lunch. The crowd just mops the floor with what the best people of the core can come up with. Uh, and, and so we found all these fascinating examples of that, and it's worth diving into and figuring out how and why is the crowd so powerful. Can you give us an example? What's a scenario where the, the crowd did better than the core of a company? Well, well here's a good one uh, that, that just got launched today. If you, I was just reading as I was coming over here, just before I was coming over here. Uh, there's an organization called Kaggle. Anybody familiar with Kaggle? So this is a, a group, uh, an organization that's brought together one million data scientists. And uh, the uh, US government has just asked them to run a contest to figure out better ways to speed up airport screening, to identify things more efficiently and, and, and speed the process. They have a one and a half million dollar prize. Can anyone here think of a more important thing <laughs> to do? <laughs> exactly. And, and, and the reason that they, that they went to Kaggle is that, as Andy was saying, you know, there's some pretty smart people working in Homeland Security, people who they could hire from, you know, from Harvard or MIT or, or UW or wherever, but instead of just picking a, a few core people to work on this, they want to tap into that a million plus data scientists. And as Andy was saying, um, when they do that, they get answers just out of left field. One of the reasons that the crowd works so well is not just that there's a bunch of people, but more importantly that there's a lot of diversity of people. Any organization, no matter how good it is, most of the smart people work outside of that organization. Furthermore, um, in the organization, people tend to get groupthink. They sort of start thinking the same ways. They hire people similar to them. But what makes these contests successful is that there's some very new approaches, techniques, algorithms that people are doing in, in Ireland or uh, Bangalore or Norway or wherever that um, the people in the core hadn't been familiar with. And those can sometimes make a 10 or 20 or 50% improvement in the performance, and sometimes even a few hundred percent improvement. One of the weirdest examples we came across that made it into the book, uh, you know who our buddy Kareem Lakhani is at Harvard Business School? He's one of our colleagues, does great research about how to tap into well, the crowd. He's at Harvard, we're at MIT, but we claim him because he got his PhD at MIT. Yeah, so he's, he got brought up proper is what I'm trying to say. Um, so Kareem worked with the National Institutes of Health to try to see if they could improve over the baseline NIH algorithm for sequencing uh, human white blood cells, which have really weird genomes, so you gotta do some clever work on it. The baseline algorithm from the NIH could do this work in about four hours with about 70% accuracy. Is that good? Is that bad? National Institutes of Health. Yeah, I mean, okay, that's the National Institutes of Health. You'd think that's kind of a good baseline to work from. There was a researcher at Harvard Medical School, also kind of the core of the medical establishment, who got it down from four hours to one hour and got it up to about 75% accuracy. Okay, that's better. Then Kareem worked with Topcoder in this case, another crowdsourced tough problem um, site, and threw this problem open to all the random weirdos out there on the internet. And the best solutions that came from the random weirdos of the internet did the work in 10 seconds and did it at about 80% accuracy, which they thought was close to the theoretical maximum here. And when they went and interviewed the people who, who submitted those solutions, there was not one person with life sciences experience among them. Most of them were students. They were all from fields very, very far away. So the fancy word for, for some of the secret sauce here is marginality. If, what you, if your expertise is marginal or kind of far away from the, what the uh, apparent 
domain of the problem, chances of solving actually go up. You know Eric Raymond's law, with, um, with enough eyeballs, all bugs are shallow. There's a lot of eyeballs out there. It's amazing, four hours to 10 seconds. Yeah. We, so we, Kareem wrote this paper up and Eric and I read it, and I called him up immediately, I said, he's a friend of mine, so I said, dude, um, <laughs> is this the craziest thing you've ever seen? And he said, it's about average. I said, come on. He said, if I run a competition, a fair crowd competition, and I don't see this magnitude of improvement from the crowd, I think I've done my work incorrectly. So, so what's, what stops more and more companies from actually taking advantage of this ability to tap well, into the crowd? They haven't read the book yet. But, <laughs> but, but, but I'm only half joking. It, it honestly is, is, I mean, the technology is there. This is a cultural change. This is a mindset change. It was something that you just couldn't do. You, you, you physically couldn't do this a, a decade or two ago. We now, for the first time, have the majority of the world's population, the majority of the world's brains, connected in a global internet and able to share information like this um, more or less instantaneously. That hasn't always been true in history. That's never been true before. And not only can they tap into that data, more importantly, they can add to that data. So people are just now discovering new, clever ways to tap into the crowd. These contests are only one way. Um, yeah. Wikipedia is another way. Um, you have, um, a, you have a great story about Newpedia that preceded yeah. Wikipedia yes. and how it changed. Yeah, well, that, that's a good example. They, you know, so that Newpedia was kind of, a, the, despite the name, kind of the old thinking of how you make an encyclopedia. You have some experts, and you go through this seven-step process where you vet it and blah, blah, blah. They got a bunch. Jimmy Wales, the guy who did start Wikipedia, first started Newpedia. They got a few hundred thousand dollars worth of funding. They worked on it for a year. At the end of the year, I think they had, what, like 12 articles yeah. done, something like that. So this, <laughs> this is a 1,000% true story. How many of you have heard of Newpedia? This was the direct predecessor founded by the exact same people as Wikipedia. They wanted to make sure only experts could edit articles. They had a seven-step process that everyone had to go through, and the world said, yeah, no, thing. thank you. But then... <laughs> they sort of as this little skunkworks thing. Some people say, you know, there's this new, you know, uh, type of software, wikis. You could just kind of throw stuff up real quickly. Why don't we just let people just kind of play around with that? And so they let people, anybody could just sort of play around with it. And you know the rest of the story. People started writing articles like crazy. Soon they had 1,000 articles. Soon they had 10,000 articles. And then uh, Jimmy Wales' company said, wait a minute. What are we doing with this newpedia thing? We got to do the wikipedia option. And, and now it's become, you know, the resource. So that's another way that you're able to tap into a crowd. But it, it, it's, a, it, it's, it's, it's a mindset change yeah. to understand that you can tap into this. And one of the things we want to see more and more is people being creative about other ways to tap right. into the crowd. You know, Google, the power of Google, when you think about it, is really tapping into the crowd. Yeah, they've got some super smart engineers in Mountain View and elsewhere, but how do they rank the uh, pages? There's something called PageRank, and it's based on the link structure. And where do those links come from? Everybody in the crowd decides what pages to link to. And when you link to a page, when you write some, some, a, a web page and you link to others, you are voting. And so basically what Google is doing is taking the collective wisdom of the crowd, all the votes that different pages get, and the ones with more votes get up to the top of the search rankings. So they are leveraging our collective thinking. Mez, your question is one that Eric and I grappled with a lot in the book. Why is it so hard? for successful, incumbent, established, well-managed companies to, to see these possibilities. 
and, and like Eric says, the idea of, of crowdsourcing your toughest problems went from actually inconceivable, this is extraordinarily hard to do 20 years ago, to kind of cognitively inconceivable, even though the, even though the technology environment changes really quickly. So the mantra that I've adopted as we wrote this book was that tech progress rewrites the business playbook, and a lot of even very good companies get stuck in the old version of the playbook. So we talk about collective intelligence, and these are awesome examples, but we've seen some failures recently, right? We've seen uh, harassment and hate on Twitter, we've seen yeah. fake news on Facebook, yes. maybe the filter bubble, collective intelligence seeming to go down rat holes. What is, does that make you rethink your thesis at all? Uh, well, I, I think this is a powerful tool, and any powerful tool can be used for, for good or evil. And yeah, let's compare, you know, Facebook, Twitter, Wikipedia, they all harness the crowd in different ways. They have slightly different structures. And Wikipedia, even the first time, they didn't get the, the fine tuner quite right. Wikipedia tends to have a lot less fake news. And actually, we were talking to Jimmy Wales about this. And, and he, you know, he thinks, I'm convinced, that a lot of it has to do with the fine structure of how you set it up. And that the way Facebook was set up, it, it's, it's very prone to these filter bubbles. You share stuff with your friends, and your friends aren't inclined to fact check it. At Wikipedia, there are these editors, you don't know who they are, and they take it upon themselves to fact check it. They're not your buddies. They're not there to like say, rah, rah, more of the, you know, go Obama, go Trump, whatever. They have a, a very different perspective. And by depending on how you set it up, you get different outcomes. One of the things that we're, we're collectively doing is experimenting with different ways of structuring it. And sometimes we mess up, and you know, you talk to Mark Zuckerberg, and I think he'd be among the first to say, they yep. messed up big time yep. in 2016. Um, at first, they thought, hey, we, it's not our responsibility. Um, I, they say, hey, we, we're, just, we're like selling a pencil. And if someone writes bad words with a pencil, that's not our responsibility. And they were, they were sticking to that line for a while. And now they've backed off. They said, you know what? No, that's not right at all. That's you know, not the right model. One thing that I think we've learned in 2016 and 2017 is that free speech is a bummer. Right, because we we are actually giving. There's there's the old great quote from the journalist A.J. Liebling. He said, "Freedom of the press is limited to those who own one." Okay, hey everybody, we got a printing press now, and so do the Nazis and the racists and the anti-Semites and the trollers and the haters. And that that echo chamber can make these environments filthy, filthy places. So I have not walked away from my devotion to free speech. But I'm going to segue and talk about another chunk of our book now. Um, we kind of think that a, a part of a big part of the solution to this weakness of the crowd is are actually machines, and and what I mean by that are machine learning algorithms that can recognize, uh, you know, vitriolic speech, terrorist speech, stuff like that. Do that very sophisticated pattern matching and yank it down. In addition to these architectural changes that Eric talked about, so that the, you 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 can reconfigure things so that the echo chamber doesn't. It doesn't but, echo quite as, but, as but at, loud. But at the end of the day, I think more and more, the, the, the limiting thing, and one of the things we, we stress in the book, is figuring out our institutions and the organizational side of it is where I think there's been a, a bigger and bigger gap. And it's great that the technologists are working on the machine algorithms and the ways to tap into the crowd, but the, the biggest bottleneck and the biggest gap is figuring out how to use them more effectively, the economic principles underlying, the organizational principles underlying, and that's a big part of why we wrote the book, was to try to lay out that this is not just random chaos out there or the luck of the draw. There are some underlying principles that can work. This is, this is actually where I disagree with Eric a little bit. I'm a bigger fan of using the machines instead of the institutions on this one. Uh, everything that you and I see on Facebook and, and a lot of these other platforms has been teed up for us by a machine learning algorithm. Great. Tweak those to damp 
the, the stupidity and the hatred and the echoing. So you both have hope that this, this filter bubble can get better, and you would use machines to assess truthiness, and you would change the incentives of the structure of Facebook to, to, to change what Well, I, I think we do both. Yeah. Maybe, maybe we'd put we the emphasize, emphasis differently. And, and um, we don't, we're not faith. I, would, I wouldn't quite use that word. Hope. I, 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 yeah, Optimism. I, I, I think that there, there's the potential for it, but it, it's very much going to depend on our choices, and it, it's certainly not going to be automatic. And I, I, the last thing I'd want to do is just sit back and say, hey, don't worry, it's all going to work out. That would be totally yeah. the wrong attitude. Totally. So since we're talking about Facebook, let's, let's dive into what it is, which is it's a platform. So you talk about right. a change from businesses selling products to businesses creating platforms that soak up a lot of that value. What is that? What's happening there? Well, I would soak up, I create a lot of that value. Great. So, so you know, uh, five of the five most valuable companies in the world are basically platform companies. Uh, two of them here in Seattle, uh, uh, Microsoft and Amazon, but also uh, Facebook, Google Alphabet, and Apple, and what they have in common is not that they just that they create some great products, but more importantly, that they enable an ecosystem. They create a platform for other people to contribute to that. And you know, so whether it's Apple's um, uh, apps that people are contributing, um, or in other ways, um, and these platforms um, scale as more and more people yep. participate in them. They have network effects, or even more subtly, we get into the book, two-sided network effects. You're all familiar with the, the, the basic network effect, which is like the value of a telephone goes up if other people own the telephone. If no one else has a telephone, it's not very valuable, or a fax machine, or whatever. So that's a network effect, that, that more people using the same product is more valuable. A two-sided network is, is a little more subtle, but it's when people are using a, a, a other side of the network, a, a complement. For instance, um, Uber is another kind of a platform that took off very quickly. What they were able to do is create one app for users, and there's actually a different app that the drivers use. And as a user, I don't really care if lots of other users are using it. I want more drivers to be on it. And what the drivers care about is not having lots of drivers. They want to have people on the other side. And the platform is able to connect these two sides in different ways. Facebook is connecting advertisers and, and the users. And each of these, and, and, and Apple is actually a multi-sided network where you've got the different kinds of apps, the users, Apple's on the iPhones, and the more people that participate in any one of those sides, the more valuable it is to the other parts of it. So this, this concept of these multi-sided networks is uh, uh, driven in part by the digitization that we referred to earlier, these underlying technologies. It's also driven by some, some new economics that people really didn't understand very well. Uh, one of our colleagues, Jean Tirole, got a Nobel Prize a few years ago really He never shuts up about it either. It's really annoying. <laughs> <laughs> actually, Jean is like one of the most modest. That's actually he's one of the nicest, nicest guys, low-key guys in the world. So, so, Strike um, the record. <laughs> despite being French. <laughs> oh, wow. No, no, he's, we he's, went there. He's, he's, he, and, and he's a very sweet guy. And, and he worked this out. And yep. you can, there's some beautiful, elegant math. Some of our other yep. colleagues, like Marshall Van Alstein, helped to contribute to it. And what we try and do in the book is say, look, these platforms aren't just accidents that just pop right. up that if you understand the economics, you can see sometimes it makes sense to give stuff away for free and then you make money on the other side of the network. It's not always a good idea to give stuff away for free. You should just do it willy-nilly. But if you understand the platform economics, you can see when it is a profitable strategy. And Eric just did a really nice job of walking through those economics. My favorite part when we were writing the section on platforms was highlighting how no less an authority on all things digital than Steve Jobs very nearly blew this. Right. I love this story. Talk this is, about this is an actual true story. Um, when Jobs introduced the All iPhone. All our stories are true stories. <laughs> a, a, a decent fraction of our stories are true stories. 
So the iPhone came out just about a uh, little more than 10 years ago, January of 2007. And when it was introduced, some of us are probably old enough to remember this, all of the apps that were available for the iPhone were developed by Apple. And that was not an accident. That was an adamant, deliberate strategy by Steve Jobs. Jobs was a control freak, and he didn't want uh, random, crashy, buggy, virusy kinds of things mucking up his beautiful iPhone. He had colleagues on the board, he had executives inside the company who tried to persuade him of some of the economics that Eric just talked about and said, look, open this platform up and you're going to unleash a whole lot of energy. And Jobs was like, nope. And it took about a year and a half of convincing for him to do it. Apple finally opened up the iPhone store, the, um, it was called iTunes back then, opened up iTunes to outside developers of the iPhone in July of 2008. And just like with Wikipedia, they came back a half hour later and there were 6,000 articles. They came back a day later and there were 400 amazing apps available for the iPhone. And it's one of the few times that I think Jobs ever came anywhere near close to admitting that he'd been anything less than faultless about something. So you're saying Steve Jobs did not want me to have Angry Birds. He, no. He, no, not unless his not people first. came up with Angry Birds. He learned. This is true. It doesn't seem like a very Apple product, Angry Birds. Yeah. Um, so when you look at these platforms, it seems that there's, in most of them, because of the network effects, there's a winner-takes-all dynamic, or winner leaves for one or two or three winners totally. Does that concern you as far as monopolizing power or lack of innovation or stagnation? The... the, the Guideline that I try to follow is that all great concentrations of power demand vigilance, and we need to be mindful of them and watch out for them and try to make sure that, that they're not abusing that power or doing things that, don't, that we don't like, right? To me, that's different than saying that all great concentrations of power need to be broken up. And here's a, uh, here's a uh, flip analogy. America is a great concentration of power. Um, I am not about to commit treason here on this stage. I am not advocating that we break up the United States government. So um, in the same way, I, I will worry a lot more about the power that these platform companies have. And these are really powerful companies, and we need to be vigilant. I'll worry more about them when I get clear evidence that either innovation is being squelched or that we consumers are being harmed. And, and, and Andy just hit on the two key tests for, for good antitrust. I mean, when a competitor becomes very, very powerful, uh, its competitors get angry and they say, hey, we've got to stop these guys. Uh, we at Walmart are having trouble competing with Amazon or whatever. And um, Boo -hoo -hoo it's for understandable Walmart, that right? they would say that and marshal as much um, anger in that direction. But the regulators and the rest of us, we shouldn't be worrying about the competitors. We should be worrying about the consumers or about the innovation. And on both those fronts, so far, these companies are pushing prices down, even to the point of free for a lot of them. And I don't see like a lack of innovation in the app economy or social media. It looks like it's still still going pretty strong, stronger than in these other places. Now, if that changes, yeah. I'm I'm totally with Andy. You know, we need to keep be vigilant. And if it if if the I guess when Amazon bought Whole Foods, they got about four percent of the uh, grocery market. You know, if that gets to be you know sixty percent and they start raising prices, you know, then then I, I would I would change the story. But the other thing that gives me some, you know. Uh, confidence and maybe willingness to sit back a little bit is uh, another economist, I love quoting economists, Joseph Schumpeter. Um, so he was a great Austrian economist, and um, he came up with this concept of creative destruction. And the way he described a capitalist, successful economy working was, yes, you get monopolies, but then another monopoly overtakes it, and another monopoly overtakes it. So you get companies that, that become dominant for a while, but if they don't keep innovating, 
someone else can be innovators. So there was once VisiCalc, and then Lotus, and then Excel, and, you know, and, and, and each of them, it, it, um, they got overtaken. They had big, you know, 70% market shares for a while, and eventually, you know, Windows just became more or less irrelevant um, as, as the iPhone and, 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 and other uh, tools became more pertinent. So that's what I see a lot more of happening in this uh, tech economy, is absolutely, you get these monopolies, but they're, as long as they're temporary and they're yeah. subject to challenge, right. then exactly. it's less of a concern. And, and one of the classic things that a monopolist does that we need to watch out for is price gouge. Kind of hard for Google and Facebook to price gouge us when they give it away for free. That's a pretty low price. That's, I think, so, it doesn't hurt, right? It doesn't feel like I'm being gouged. Yeah. So you talk, you have some advice or some analysis of what leads to a company being successful in building a platform. So if, you have, if there's entrepreneurs here who want to get into this, a new space, let's say, that isn't monopolized already, what would you tell them to do to try to establish themselves successfully? Again, there's a book. <laughs> Step one. Yeah. But, but, we, but we, what we try to do in the middle section of the book is, is go through the, the economics that Eric just went through a, a second ago in a bit more detail to, to talk about why two-sided or, or n-sided markets work, why you would drop prices for one side versus the other, which side you would pick, and, ki and kind of do all that. At the same time, so I think the, the economics are at the core of all these successful platform companies that, that we learned about and that, that we think are really, really cool. At the same time, we found a couple other things they seem to do really well. One of them is focus obsessively on the user interface and the user experience, which is hard to do on a very small amount of real estate. You're trying to cram in a lot of functionality. So all the platform companies that we talk to work like crazy on getting that stuff right. And they A-B test and they've got really smart people on it. And then the other thing they do is they, they just draw in um, you know, data geeks from economics and operations research and yield management and stuff like that, and they cram a whole lot of math and algorithms and matching inside the ecosystem that they build. Yeah, and, and what they do, if they do it right, they get a virtuous cycle going, or I guess the, the, the term of art these days is flywheel going, um, where you, um, you get a few more users and on one side, and then you get more on the other side and becomes a positive feedback loop. But getting that ignited, getting that started, can yeah. be very difficult. So if you can find a way that can work with very small numbers of users, or just you know a lead user, then you can ignite that virtuous cycle. And if it gets going, it can take off very rapidly, and it becomes, like you said, often a winner-take-all market or winner-take-most market. Venture capitalists love that because if you can be out in front and they're willing to invest to try to get you into that lead, but you also got to be careful because the same thing can unravel if you start getting into a a vicious cycle where it goes the opposite way, it can all come undone pretty quickly too. We, we got a great example of exactly how to do this just two days ago. We had a book event in San Francisco. We invited some of our alpha geeks to come talk with us, us on stage. And one of them is Patrick Collison, co-founder of Stripe. Stripe is a payments company uh, founded by these two Irish kids. And I mean, I'm using kids. the word correctly. Patrick and John Collison were 21 and 19 years old respectively when they founded this company. To to take on the established payments industry around the world. <laughs> take on the banking industry. Well, look, what, look, what the heck were you thinking? But, but they're really very, very smart, thoughtful, great entrepreneurs. And, and Patrick said, you know, look, we realized that if we could build a payments platform and more merchants would show up and then more kinds of payment would show up and then we'd have different countries and we could get this virtu virtuous cycle going. But at the start, it had to do something for a customer that we were interested Even in. Even just one. one and, and, and he said, look, the one thing we could do for an online merchant from the get-go 
was accept a credit card. Just like help them process those kinds of payments. And that was enough of a toehold, and they did other clever things, and they got the virtuous cycle going. Okay, and maybe Uber, if they're not lucky enough, might be at the start of a vicious cycle. Well, that's that. At Uber, there's a couple lessons there. Obviously, their <laughs> culture has some serious problems, but you know the fact that they had such powerful two-sided network effects in this platform, I think that sustained them through uh, a less than optimal culture. <laughs> but it's not, it, it's not uh, you know unstoppable. You could easily see it coming out. And, and what we've seen the past uh, couple of months is that their market share has started turning downward and lift going up. So you could be you could be seeing something really ugly if it gets to a certain point. Yeah, yeah running, running a dysfunctional kind of ugly corporate culture is a terrible idea in this day and age and all previous ones. Excellent. Even if you've got a strong platform. <laughs> we can all applaud to that one. We can all get behind that idea. So let's go to machine. I saved this for last. This is, your previous book was The Second Machine Age. Yep. You talked about AI and, and machine learning and amazing feats. What's happened just in that sector in the last three and a half years? What's gotten better? Well, well, the biggest thing, and by the way, we, we, all of our books so far, this is the third book we've written, they all have the word machine in it, so we really are obsessing about the this. Theme. And we, we pay close attention, and, and pro the biggest thing has just been the amazing progress in machine learning. You know, we touched on it in the last book, but no, certainly us two, but even the, the, the geeks working in machine learning didn't expect it to advance as rapidly as it has. Um, and we sometimes call this the second wave of the second machine age, in that a lot of the stuff in the, the last book was about how technology could, we could teach machines how to do things. Now machines are learning on their own, and they've gotten to the point where they're crossing some real significant thresholds. For instance, vision systems that um, learn on their own how to recognize faces or cancer cells or other objects are now getting to the point where they are not just as good, but even better than human vision at recognizing those same things. Uh, uh, sound systems um, that are, are uh, voice recognition systems are beginning to recognize speech at that point. The, the error rate on Google Home went from 8.5% to 4.9%, not in the past 10 years, but in the past 10 months. And that's because of these deep neural net systems. It's a certain branch of machine learning where you feed it lots of examples and it learns. And uh, the people working in the field say that we're just in early days. This is going to improve more and more. And this technique of, of deep neural nets, supervised learning, they can apply it to lots of other areas that previously hadn't been applied to before. So we think that there are some huge impacts that are happening on business, on the economy, on the workforce as you cross that threshold. I mean, think about it. If something goes from being worse than human to better than human, then that's not just a difference in degree, that's a difference in kind. If you are an entrepreneur or a manager, you're going to pick you know, whatever tool, whatever resource, whatever person is best for that job. And if it goes from being a human to a machine, that's going to change the calculus in lots and lots of businesses or across America and across the world. I, I find it hard to overstate how big a deal this is. Uh, we, we are no longer limited by our own knowledge. We can build machines that do better than us, that exceed our own knowledge. And that, that sounds like some kind of trippy sci-fi thing. It's already happened a couple times. A lot of us are probably aware that the world's best player of the Asian strategy game, Go, is now a piece of technology. Right? We, we kind of knew that. Uh, that piece of technology is not just playing Go better than the best human players. It's playing differently than the best human players. It made moves in some of these very high-level matches that were inexplicable at the time. Nobody 
commenting or, or watching the match would know why the machine made that move, because it violated about 3,000 years of accumulated human knowledge about how to play this game. Those moves turned out to be the right ones. How do we know? The machine won the game. And the, the, the current Chinese champion of Go, who's a phenomenally talented player, went on their equivalent of Twitter a little while back, and he said, after he had played AlphaGo, he said, I don't think a single human has touched the edge of the truth of the game of Go. We played this game, we invented this game, we played it for 3,000 years, we got up to this level. And it kind of reminds me of the algorithm like of, the, of the NIH. Is, how, how good is this? How much headroom is on top of this? And AlphaGo seems to be saying, gang, there's a lot of headroom on top of this. And so I think about these other in incredibly complicated, incredibly you know, rich domains where we'd like to be smart, whether that's material science or investing or genetics, and we're not, we're not the only game in town. We have a colleague that can help us, and I think in a lot of domains, our knowledge is here, and we're gonna see a lot of headroom opening up. I'm, I'm really excited about that. So, so just to rip off what you're saying, you're saying that, that AI, machine learning, could be the best uh, scientist at designing new materials. It could be the best doctor at diagnosing a disease for medical imagery. Yeah. It could be the best engineer for designing a new airplane part. I wanna be clear, yes, that's what I'm yes. saying. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and, and, and already is in a lot of those. So there have been you know, published papers in Nature, our friend Sebastian Lund published one, where a machine learning algorithm did a better job diagnosing cancer. Um, we were talking to our, our friend Carl Bass, used to be the CEO of Autodesk, and he was showing these trippy, di these trippy objects that had been designed by machines. There's a heat exchanger, and it looked really beautiful, kind of psychedelic. It had some delicate curves to it. He said no human would have designed a heat uh, exchanger. Unless they were really high, I think is what Carl actually said. But then it said. wouldn't have worked. Right, but then, right, and then it would not exchange and this heat. One <laughs> completely exceeded anything that any of the people had designed. So these are not like right. someday maybe we'll That's see right. this. These are physical objects that have been created. These are actual diagnoses that have been done by machine learning algorithms. Now, can I do one more thing? Because yeah. one question that we always get when this question comes up is, oh my God, Skynet, right? People just immediately think about the, the Terminator or the Matrix or some kind of scary super intelligence coming because of these developments. And when Eric and I go talk to the alpha geeks who are making these technologies, they are just dismissive of this possibility. And what they say is, look, we're solving incredibly tough engineering problems. We're throwing a whole lot of math and a whole lot of computation and a whole lot of data at things. That's all we're doing. We don't know how the brain works. We don't know what consciousness is. We're not plumbing those mysteries. We're, we're banging away on this really kind of imp super important but constrained set of problems over here. I don't think they're lying to us. <laughs> you would think that. That's, tr that's true. <laughs> I'm gullible that so way, the, so the, right. The hospital information system is not gonna suddenly become self-aware and decide to take over. No. You know, the, the, the line that I use, which I, I, I said for the first time in 2013, and it still works, is I will start worrying about that when my computer spontaneously decides to talk to my printer. Awesome. <laughs> you, you have a section, when you're talking about this, you're talking about a, and going back before this, before the, the computer not, Skynet not arriving from our toasters, that <laughs> um, you talk about the old deal between machines and minds. So you're talking about rebalancing, yeah. machine yeah. to mind, crowd to core, mm -hmm. uh, platform to product. Yeah. And you talk about the old balance being uh, the machines did all the rote work, all the just like the number crunching and so on, but humans exercise all the judgment. Yeah. Is that changing? It, it damn well better, right? <laughs> um, we're gonna do a quick experiment here, and I mean, and I mean this seriously. I, we're, I'm gonna ask you three questions, and I want you to give yourself a number from one to 100. 
one being I'm absolutely, absolutely abjectly terrible at this, 100 being I'm the best that, 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 that there could possibly be at this. So here are three questions. And, men, and just mentally give yourself three numbers. Don't shout them out. Uh, compared to the folk around me, I have good judgment. Compared to the folk around me, I make good predictions. Compared to the folk around me, I am a good judge of character. You have three numbers in your head? Here's the last bit of the assignment. Average them. Don't have to be two decimal points of accuracy. Average them. Everybody have a number? Raise your hand if your number is above 50. Right, way up in the air. Way up in the air. Yeah, um, gang, no more than half the hand should be up in the air. <laughs> so we're just super fond of our judgment, and there's way too much evidence. Our judgment is awesome but it is biased and buggy and flawed, and it's really easy to beat our judgment with the, just a little bit of objective evidence and a little bit of math. And so you're saying in, in these domains, some that, are, that we think of as uh, being not just a business, but uh, judgment, judgment in the legal sense, for yeah. instance, that we'd be better off using algorithms to decide who gets parole. Well, uh, yeah, exactly. There, there have been studies of this, and, and there's a, a fascinating study of Israeli judges, and... Uh, the main thing that determined whether or not someone got parole or not was not the facts of the case, it was whether or not that judge had had a meal recently. So if the judge had low blood sugar, you were very unlikely to get parole. But if you were lucky enough to go just after breakfast or just after lunch, your odds went way, way up. So these were patterns that showed up repeatedly. It was, it was peer-reviewed, carefully studied, and this has been uh, found in lots of other situations, that we are just subject to all sorts of uh, biases in our decision making. And there's a Nobel Prize, uh, Danny Kahneman and Amos Tversky got Nobel Prizes for pointing out these kinds not, not of- Not Tversky, he was dead. Yeah, the, yeah that's right. <laughs> the, the, um, these uh, biases in decision making um, that happen, they're like blind spots. We're all familiar with the visual blind spots, but we have the same kind of blind spots in our mental decision making. And so there's room to use algorithms to make better decisions. And one of the uh, other things that's sweeping, in addition to artificial intelligence, the sweeping the country and the world is more data-driven decision-making, shifting from using human judgment to more data-driven decisions. And so, for instance, the number of companies that, um, by our criteria, have become data-driven has increased by about threefold over the past five years. It's become much more data-driven. And the companies that um, are data-driven have about 5% better productivity than the companies that aren't data-driven. The, the, the parole, the dysfunctions of the parole decision are so widely accepted now that a lot of states have actually gone toward um, algorithmic scoring for parole. This notion that I'm going to look into your eyes and know if you're a reformed criminal or not, it, give me a break. There's just way too much evidence it doesn't work very well. And, and again, part of the reason that, that this didn't happen before was we just didn't have the data. That's we right. didn't have the ability of techniques. So, you know, uh, it used to be that for thousands of years, the way important decisions were made in organizations, companies, kingdoms, whatever, is people would sit around, talk, they'd all give their opinions, and then when it was time to make a decision, they would go with the hippo. And the hippo, anybody heard that acronym before? an acronym we've used in some of our, our writing, it's, uh, it's, a, it's an acronym for the highest paid person's opinion. <laughs> so basically, that's what you ended up using as the decision-making material. You went around, and then whoever had the highest pay, that, they, their opinion would rule. But that's because you had no other data, no other way of judging. Um, but as, as Jim Clark once said, you know, if we have data, we're going to go with the data. If 
All we have is opinions. We'll go with mine. <laughs> <laughs> How many of you have seen a bad decision made based on the highest paid person's opinion? And we should be clear. Algorithms make some stupid, uh, have some weird, stupid outcomes too. What Eric and I are not saying is give every decision of any consequence over to the technology and don't ever second guess it. That's a really scary way to proceed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As you said exactly right, these are three rebalancings. And while we are enthusiasts for the power of machines, the power of platforms, the power of the crowd, we absolutely are clear in the book that it's not like you turn the dial all the way to max on each of those. You have to understand where the trade-offs are. There seems to be a recent backlash a bit against algorithmic decision-making. People complaining that the algorithms might be trained on bad data, that they might have their own biases, that we don't know what's in the algorithms, yeah. who's controlling them. What do you say about that? that that's absolutely legit. And in particular, uh, if you train an algorithm on a set of you know, data that only has one, se one segment of the population, you're going to not do a very good job with other segments of the population. So no one in machine learning that we talk to is unaware of this problem. And so they, they, they work really hard on, on training these things. There's another complaint which you brought up, which is, um, we don't know what's in the algorithms. Gang, we don't know what's between our ears either. And, and when we, we use Danny Kahneman's language in the book about system one and system two, system one is this really fast, instinctual, snap judgment thing. System two is the slow, deliberative, rational. We, we all walk around thinking that because we're evolved human beings, uh, system two kind of carries the day and it can override this, this lizard braid system one. That's actually about 180 degrees backward. And what, what we know from, from way too much evidence is that what really happens, the imagery that I love, is that um, system two, this rational deliberative thing, is a very high-paid high lawyer drafted by system one to, to get system one's will done out there in the world. So it, it's an explainer module, not the actual right. decider module. People, people call it, 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 psychologists call it confabulation. You will come up with a reason for doing something no matter whether or not you realize it or not, and that's part of what System 2 does. But, but you do hit on some important points. It is certainly possible for, and, and, and common for these algorithms to have hidden biases in them, and it usually comes not because the people who design the algorithms have some ill intent. It's, it's as Andy said, it's from the training data. And if the training data has is trained on, you know, who should we give loans to? Let's look at who our loan officers gave loans to. And if, <laughs> and if the loan officers had biases, subtle biases, those are going to be picked up in the training data, and the algorithm is going to have those biases. Yeah. But, but it is, and it could, be, it could be problematic because it's very unlikely that the algorithm, or it's certain that the algorithm is not going to have uh, a, a rule in there that says, you know, don't give loans to black people or whatever the, the biases is. It's going to be much more subtle because yeah. many of these neural nets have upwards of one billion interconnections and weights, and trying to sort out what exactly is going on in those billion interconnections and weights is, is basically impossible. They cannot explain it to us. We can't properly explain to each other. The, the, thing that, the reason that I think Andy and I both have some um, pushback on a little bit on, on the, the anger against the algorithms is that um, we have the potential to, to improve them over time. And I think that there's more room to test. And the algorithm will come up with the same recommendation given the same amount of the same data. And then you can tweak it, and you can see what, what kinds of mistakes it may be ma making. And once you improve it, you can have sustained uh, improvements over time. That's a lot harder to do with humans. It's much harder to even understand where the biases of humans are and get them to overcome their own biases. For example, if you give an experienced clinician, a medical clinician, the same information about a patient, 
uh, over the space, and you wait about 24 or 48 hours, they will agree with themselves about 65% of the time, no more than that. That's not a failure mode that the algorithms have, but the algorithms are just god-awful stupid about what's happening out there in the world. They, they, they deeply lack common sense. We have a ton of that. Uh, and what, what Eric and I are excited about is if you bring together minds and machines properly, you don't double down on the errors. You, you can cancel each other's errors out. Yeah. So how do you do that? How would you put mind and machine together in these judgment scenarios? Let me, let me give you a couple of examples. One is, is exactly in sort of looking at data diagnoses. Um, a lot of these algorithms, they can be tuned and, and be very good at detecting cancer, but they often uh, make too many... Uh, false positives. They say, hey, this looks like cancer, and it really isn't. Humans are actually better at ruling those out. So many of the systems that people put in place will do them sequentially. The, the machine will bring to the attention. This is something that looks concerning. Instead of these 1,000 places you could look, or these 10,000 places you look, just look at these 20. Mm. And then the human focuses their attention on the ones that are concerning, and maybe rules some in and some out. Uh, another example is one that I think we, we may, may all be able to rate a little bit more, is um, uh, as the sales process, uh, our, our friend Sebastian Thrun runs a company called Udacity. Anybody here know Udacity, familiar with that? It's an online uh, teaching course. And they get a lot of incoming traffic from people um, through chat rooms saying, hey, is this course right? Should I be doing this? W what do you think? Should I be taking this? And they have highly trained, really good salespeople who respond back in these chat rooms, rapid fire answering questions. Some of them are better than others. And what Sebastian and his student realized was that, hey, all these transcripts of all of our conversations with customers and potential customers are training data for an algorithm. Let's teach the algorithm which conversations lead to sales and which ones don't lead to sales. And by looking at examples, sales, not sale, sales, not sale, it eventually starts certain patterns or certain kinds of things, information you can provide, ways you can phrase things that are more likely to convert a potential customer. But instead of trying to build an an uber uh, amazing bot that would be able to answer all of the questions that people came in that was sort of uh, artificially intelligent at that level, they built one that just gave advice or suggestions to the human salespeople, especially to those not so good, that the 50% that were below average, and, and every organization has 50% of the people that are below average, sadly. Um, hard, so, hard truth. Hard truth, another hard truth. So, um, but, but what it would do is as the questions came in, it would notice some patterns and say, you know, you might want to give them this piece of information, or you might want to phrase it this way. And over time, the humans got better, but they would get this, this prompting. And it increased the uh, throughput by about 50% and the conversion rate by over 20%. So that was a good example of humans and machines working together to have better performance than either of them could have separately. Okay. Last topic before we open it up to all of you for questions. If the computer is going to be so good at diagnosing disease, at helping us with sales, maybe doing it one day, what are we going to do? Right, read science fiction novels. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right, and read science fiction novels. The, 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 the important thing to keep in mind is that technology is encroaching on stuff that we used to need all of us for. That's absolutely true, and Eric and I think that that encroachment is going to continue and it's going to accelerate, and that can be a terrifying vision for a lot of people. Uh, the thing to keep in mind is that there is no shortage of work to be done. There is no shortage of work to be done that as for a long time to come, even with crazy tech progress, still needs to be done by human beings. And a couple different categories of that are 
work that requires compassion, or work that requires tapping into social drives, work that requires putting, like, dealing with other human bodies. We're so blobby and weird, the robots are not very good at that stuff yet. Um, my mom, unfortunately, is in a rehab facility. I think she'd want me to specify that it's a physical rehab facility. <laughs> um, and this, the surgeon that worked on her back, and then the physical therapists who are helping her regain her function, these are not going to be replaced by robots anytime soon. I can vouch for that firsthand. We need to take care of little kids. We have sick people. We have lonely elderly people. That is work that is human, human work to be done. If we could actually decide that we wanted to have an infrastructure in this country that was better than a D-plus grade, the robots are not repairing bridges and airports yet. So that, that's hard, good old fashioned, you know, a brawny hard hat work for America. We can continue to go down the list. There's just no shortage of work to be done. I mean, the thing to keep in mind in terms of the big picture is technology's always been destroying jobs, but it's also always been creating jobs. And there, there's this turnover. We're concerned because it's happening at a faster pace. It's a broader swath of things. But we are very far from having machines be able to do everything. We, I don't doubt that maybe someday that will happen. But what we're, the problem we're facing right now is not the end of work. It's a big dislocation, a transference of work. And the advice I would give is look for things that machines can't do well. And Andy hit on, on two of the big categories. One are interpersonal skills, emotional intelligence, caring, compassion, coaching, motivating, teamwork, leadership, all of those sort of human skills. The other big category is creative work. And I mean like large scale, complicated, writing novels, um, coming up with scientific discoveries, being an entrepreneur and, and conceiving of a whole new way of, of organizing people and, and products and, and customers. Um, those kinds of, of large scale creative tasks, machines can't do well at all. In fact, there's probably no better time in history to be a talented entrepreneur or a person with any kind of talent that is scalable with these machines. It's, it's a time when you can just affect the world to a far greater uh, extent than you ever could before. So there's room for ways that we can do a lot, lot better. And uh, I, I think it's way, way premature to sort of be talking about, let's put everybody on you know, basic income or whatever and, and give up on work. I think there's so much work that needs to be done and that can be done only by humans. We just have to help make that transition happen. I mean, you're kind of my exhibit A for uh, I, I, someone who's not going to get replaced by technology anytime soon because I know three important things that you do professionally. You write science fiction novels. Computer-generated extended prose, wow, does that suck. Like, it's just completely, it's gibberish so far. Um, you are an amazing moderator, and you're tapping into all these social energies out here in the room. Technology's lousy at that. And we've, Eric and I have learned a ton from you about uh, energy over the years, and you decided to focus on that problem and then inform yourself on it. You picked an area and then got deep on it. The technology doesn't know what area to go pick and get deep on. Okay. Well, I look forward to reading all of your science fiction novels in the years to come. <laughs> <laughs> on, on that note, let's give it up for Andy and Eric here. Thanks, guys. And so now we will take questions. Please line up at the mics. And I mean questions. I do not mean statements. I do not mean manifestos. I do not mean expressions of your opinion. I mean <laughs> questions. It should have a rising tone at the end, ideally. <laughs> This is really out of respect for everyone else that does have just a question they want to ask. So we'll start over here. Amy. So your very first topic that you talked about was the, the how, how well crowds do compared to experts. 
And it seems like on the one hand, this is kind of a, a problematic erosion of the notion of expertise, because if that's the case, then how can we you know, tell people you should listen to these scientists about global warming or you should listen to the medical yeah. establishment about vaccines? And I don't know if it's just a matter of you know, something that's just a, like accumulation of research data versus coming up with different kinds of ideas, but I was hoping you could talk a little more about um, the distinctions between the kind of issues where you might want crowdsourcing or expertise might not actually be that valuable versus the ones where it, it's so a, expertise it's a, is helping. Can I do this one? Because I've, I've, I've tried to think about this. I, I, your question's a really important question. What, what we don't want to be in the business of is contributing to the erosion of respect for facts and for expertise. That's, there's enough of that going on already, right? So the, the way I've come to think about it is if you want to understand the state of the art in climate change or crystallography or anything, go talk to the credentialed experts. And those, are, these, those folk are pretty easy to identify. If you want to make progress on a tough problem in those disciplines, that's where I start to turn to the crowd. And I make a, I make a distinction between credentials and chops. And what, what the crowd demonstrates, what these weirdos out in the crowd demonstrates, they got amazing chops to work on a problem that credentialed experts continue to undervalue, I think. And, and this is a really key point. Absolutely. I don't think that expertise is less valuable. It's more valuable. The, the point is that expertise takes many forms. Mm. The people come in and, and solve these problems, they have amazing insights that the people inside the organization didn't have. They have some expertise in, in random forest and decision analysis in, in different techniques than the ones inside the organization have. So what you're really doing is you're tapping into a more diverse, diverse set expertise. of techniques and expertise. Exactly. You're avoiding the groupthink. And by doing that, that's what you're really leveraging. It's not that these are a bunch of people who have no skills, whatever, and just are throwing darts against a board. These are really, really sharp people who are involved. They have chops. Some of them have credentials. Some of them don't have credentials. Yep. But they have skills that, obviously, the initial group didn't have. So it, it's, it's, it's not at all meant to be um, shooting down expertise or learning or techniques. Yeah. If anything, it's tapping into more of that in a more diverse way. And the last I think I think it's important to say about that, chops are accessible, right? We have, do, can you do this or not? Did your algorithm perform better or not? To me, that's the exact opposite of morons yelling fake news at each other. Yeah, <laughs> and, and, and there are more and more platforms for finding this. So, so, so Top Coder, we mentioned that. This is where people can go, and there is a pretty objective uh, ranking there of people who are, have high Top Coder scores, who have done things, Kaggle, and one of the things that, that the these folk are not winging it, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. These, no, they're, they're not, they, they have, and they learn from each other. So it's a new way of yeah. generating expertise, if you will, and identifying. Okay, thank you. Over here, sir. Uh, you both spoke early on about concentrations of power and awareness, uh, and you did so in terms of individual, individual companies that that came close to being monopolies. I mean, I don't know if you use word monopolies, but and here's where my questions start. Isn't the real concentration of power tech itself? The combination of, of now four generations that have worked on algorithms, hardware, communications, and would, most people would easily move from one problem to another, and that uh, it, it has become uh, quite an upper class and with a need to defend itself and to keep on growing, and that might what happen, be happening now is a move from augmentation technologies to scale automation, to autonomous driving. Who has asked for that besides the tech companies? 
disabled and, disabled yeah. people. Well, blind, yeah, let yeah, me no, well, let me finish since you asked. That yeah, was a question. Yeah, yeah. Disabled people, blind people, elderly people, people with small kids who'd like to have them get around safely. I'm in. Pe I'm in too. People who want to have yeah. fewer than thirty thousand road fatalities in the United States per year. I'm asking okay. for that. I mean, that's on the margin at that point in terms of autonomous driving. On the margin. And in terms of scale automation, I mean, so so the, the, the Lieutenant Governor of California has actually just broached this as a problem for the tech industry. So my question is, if you'll have another book out in three or four years, will there have been serious attacks from the left and the right on the tech industry for just the reasons that I've outlined? I think there will be attacks, but not for the reasons that, that you want. I, I, I'm with Andy that I think uh, self-driving cars would be one of the most uh, best thing, most humanitarian things that could be done given. I think people will consider that the carnage that we are willing to accept right now with non-self-driving cars is just unimaginable in, in a few years, and it would be, it would be striking that, that we didn't try to work on it sooner. That said, I do see a, a concern, and it's one that I think the tech industry, all of society is going to have to take on, which is not just the concentration of power in companies, but potentially much more concentration of wealth in, in, among individuals, because some of these winners, there's a great time to be an entrepreneur. There's more millionaires, more billionaires than ever in history. The top 1% and the top 1% of the top 1% have a bigger share of income than any time since the, just before the Great Depression in the 1930s, if that's any uh, comfort. And um, that kind of concentration of wealth can lead to a concentration of power, and the people who aren't part of that, I could see becoming very disaffected. So one of the challenges we have before us is thinking about how we can create not just prosperity, but shared prosperity. I think technology is doing a lot to make the pie bigger, and it's up to uh, us as a society to think about, as we make that pie bigger, what can we do to make sure that it's broadly shared? Okay. Thank you, sir. Over here. If I may have a question, actually, I think that ties in with that. As we make the pie bigger, you, you closed with, what can people do? We can be compassionate toward kids, just like early childhood teachers. We can be working with kids, being teachers. We can care for the elderly. I thoroughly agree with you on that. I'm getting a little emotional because these are the same uh, industries that are not getting paid. They are getting driven out, and I'm not in any way attacking you guys in any way, but our system is not designed to do that. I have talked to many people. I'm a teacher myself. I've had a student in particular say, I was explicitly told junior year, don't go become a teacher. You're too good for this. And yet to me, that's exactly the people that we need to become teachers, but they can't make a living given the way that things have changed because of this inequality gap. What can we do? Well, look, uh, I'm not sure that I agree with that, that little last part that you said. I'm not sure it's because of a big gap in wealth and income that we don't pay teachers very well. I, I just don't make that association. That's, so that is fair. Okay. I, I would agree. It's systemically, and there's, there's institutions. But because of how, because of the rules we set up, this is a systems problem. This is the institutions. These are the rules that we've put in place. What can we, what should we change to make this actually make them valued for the way that they should be valued because of what they do? Because I agree, those are the kinds of things that we do really well as humans, but that's not valued economically because it doesn't go faster, faster, faster. But, but this, this is a choice, okay? This is not something that is determined ex exogenously. We were, we've been visiting a lot of, I was in Finland recently, and they choose to have teachers among the highest paid college yes. graduates. Yes. But that's not something that a computer decided. You know, that's something that a society decides. So this is a conversation we have to have if we think that lawyers are going to add more value or more of the wealth creators than teachers and, and pay them accordingly as a society, then that's one allocation. Or we can decide that teachers are creating more value. There's a great study 
by Eric Hanischek, that a, a teacher in the top quartile adds about $400,000 to the earnings of, that, of each year of students that come out of that compared to a, a median teacher. So it, even just on that very narrow metric, it's not the only metric of, of earnings, it's, uh, it's a huge amount of wealth creation. But that's something, you know, that, that is a choice. And one of the, the lessons we had at the end of the, the second Machine Age, the last book, and this book as well, is that technology does not make our choices for us. We can't abdicate that or blame <coughs> technology for that. Right. We can make our choices. What technology is doing is giving us more powerful tools than we've ever had in history. And tools can be used in lots of different ways. That means the more powerful the tool is, the more choices we have, the more power we have, almost by definition, to change the world. Now, are we going to use that? Are we going to use it? In, in, and we have to decide what our values are. Um, you know, I think that those of us that are in this conversation right now, I probably have fairly aligned values, but it has to be a conversation broader that, than that about how we want to allocate our society's resources and how, what kind of level of shared prosperity. But we see technology as part of the solution to that. It can have safer roads, it can have better health, it can have better education. Um, how we go about rewarding the participants in that is a social decision. And, and, and the only thing I want to add to that, a technologically sophisticated society is a wealthy enough society to pay teachers well. But the paying teachers well is not about the technology, about the choices that we are making as a, as a people together. So thank you, great question. So we, we choose you, sir. Early on, you talked about uh, price gouging and the power concentrated in various companies, a few companies. Um, and how do you get better than zero? Yeah, how do you get cheaper than zero? What if you put a monetary value on privacy or lack of privacy? How would that enter in your thinking about when to worry? There are about 1.9 billion Facebook accounts in the world today. That is what? That's about two-sevenths of the world's population. So either Facebook is the first company in history that has finally managed to fool all of the people all of the time, or there's something else going on. And that other thing that I think is going on is we're going to roll out a suite of really, really attractive capabilities to you to let you form a network of friends and share all kinds of media and do these other things. And in exchange, you got to look at some ads. Two billion people are taking that deal. I, 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 I see that, and I, I, I have to have some faith in the choices that they're making. There has been intense scrutiny on these companies to see if they're doing really nefarious, shady things and selling our data out the back door. I haven't seen the expose about how terrible things are. I, I just don't share that concern. You're saying it's a quid pro quo and people just value that privacy less than what they're getting out of this. The voluntary exchange, yeah. And you know, as economists, we're kind of, as a bedrock thing, we're kind of fans of voluntary, voluntary exchange, especially when you have the information about the exchange. And I think we do have the information about that exchange. Okay. I think Thanks. it's a good deal, actually. I think, yeah. it's, I think it's a really good deal. You know, just take that one little part of what Facebook does or Instagram, you know, photographs. It used to be about 50 cents a piece. It wasn't that long ago, the year 2000. And there were, let me see, well, there were about one, there were about one twentieth as many photos taken back then as there are today and shared. And now they're done basically for free. We share them with our, our mothers or grandmothers or kids um, instantly through this network. It's, it's a much better, um, for me, social system way of sharing photographs than what we had um, you know, 15 years ago. 
My wife keeps getting ads for guns. She doesn't know what she clicked on someday <laughs> that caused that to happen or how to stop it. Well, the user interface could be better. There is something in Facebook yeah. where you can go up and you, through the preferences, and you know, I don't have the menu in front of you can click <laughs> yeah. through and you can say, you can actually click things you'd like to see more of or less of, you can see your history. So there is a way you could do it. They could do a better job of making it more accessible. Thank you. Or Thank you, sir. find a 12-year-old. <laughs> <laughs> that's, a, that's a growth industry right there. Yeah. Yes, sir, over here. Uh, just as a point, by the way, to the prior person's message, um, you guys said earlier that Google, Facebook, you know, they're not monopolies because they're not charging you, but they are monopolies in that if people are on those two platforms, they're charging the advertisers. So Monopoly means takes all of a market. There is I, I, I understand. Oh, but, but, let's use, your... but let's be careful about the words we're using then. What's your question, sir? The question I've got is, uh, NPR was just doing something on this just the other day, and they were doing a thought experiment on growth. And they were saying that, imagine that you go to sleep every 50 years from 1800 to today. Mm -hmm. And every year you wake up, and you've got 1900s electrification, and you've got cars, 1950s has come through, you've got the washing machines and whatnot, and then if you went to sleep and wake up today, essentially nothing has changed other than the electronics. And then they paired that with the uh, Bureau of Labor and Statistics growth rates, which are showing that the growth rate from 2007 to 2016 for productivity is the lowest growth rate that we have ever seen since this has been keeping track of. So if what you're saying is true and happening, why is the per person labor productivity growth lower than we have ever seen in the history of this record keeping? Yeah, there, there are a couple of really interesting questions down in there. Um, one, so let me say two things. I'm, I'm gonna kick the productivity question over to Eric because he's one of the great scholars of productivity, actually. Um, that, that thought experiment, waking up every 50 years, is a really interesting one. If you picked a random human being on the planet and didn't confine yourself to those of us lucky enough to be born into the luck, you know, to win the birth lottery, born in America, uh, you'd get an extremely different result. The average human being would have seen no change from 1800 till about, you know, four, 30 or 40 years ago, and then the material conditions of, of their life would have improved faster than ever before. I'm talking about income, I'm talking about health, child mortality, things we care very deeply about. The past 50 years uh, have been the, 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 the most um, optimistic and hopeful time for the average person on the planet that we've seen. So, so if we broaden out that experiment, we get a very different result. And they've set it to the point of technological change, not when the change reaches people. So one, one thing to bear in mind is that GDP is not a measure of our well-being, and productivity is based entirely on GDP. I know that it's always used that way. It's used that way on NPR. It's used that way in the newspapers. People get excited when the quarterly numbers come out and productivity was 2.3% or was it 2.2%. Um, the person who invented GDP was a guy named Simon Kuznets, one of the great inventions of the 20th century. And shortly after he invented it, he said, please, please do not use this as a measure of our well-being. And that's what we instantly started doing. It is a measure of production of things that are bought and sold, of purchased in the economy. All this free stuff we've been talking about, by definition, was never intended to be in GDP. It's not part of GDP. Sorry, I'm not, I'm not speaking to GB, uh, GDP. I'm talking about per worker, per person labor efficiency. Yeah, well, what's the numerator? So, so that is, so per productivity is defined 
as output per worker. How is output defined? Output is defined as GDP. Go, go look it up. Okay. That, no, that's I what agree it with is. You. So, so that's, that's what it is. So there's a, we're not all, you know, the health, the well-being, the improvements in living, um, living standards, that, um, those are not counted as part of this. The other thing to bear in mind is that, um, you know, I, I think it would have, I, I actually, to, to be frank, I, I was a little disappointed with the productivity numbers recently, and we've, we're sort of in, in this, still um, had a very long slump of uh, the Great Recession there. The, the examples that we're talking about, I think most of them, part of our excitement is that these haven't even hit yet. So we, we were just talking about <coughs> self-driving cars. How many self-driving cars are there driving around Seattle right now? Basically zero, okay? So this is something that we can see coming in the pipeline on a lot of the other, the, the medical examples, yes, they were done in the laboratory, but they're not helping us right now. So our enthusiasm and our excitement, and part of the disconnect, I think, between the technophiles, the folks in Silicon Valley and at Amazon, and some of the people <coughs> in the Bureau of Labor Statistics, is the BLS is looking mainly in a rearview mirror and saying, hey, this is what happened previously. And we're looking forward, and we see just breathtaking excitement. I think if you look at the scale of inventions every 50 years, the 50-year period where you get artificial intelligence, where you get machines that can think. Where you interconnect humanity for the first time you, ever. And you have a, a billion people. I think it would be very hard to say that wasn't the coolest 50-year period ever, ever in history. And to do and, one more tick of that experiment, how many of us think that if we fell asleep today for a Rip Van Winkle period and woke up in 50 years, we would not be blown away by the crazy sci-fi world that, that we see around us? Like so that, these, that thought experiment, really? So, yeah, so wow. when we see these things pipe, well, you know, and we, will see, well, we, we, should, we should talk again in 50 years, maybe yeah. a little sooner. <laughs> um, and, 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 and so, you know, and, and maybe we're wrong, maybe there will be a catastrophe that, that stops this, but what we already see that has been proven, we've ridden around in those self-driving cars, you know, we've talked to the guys who developed them. So, so these are not hypothetical, and these are not just science fiction, although they're that too. Um, um, these are things that, that exist, and as they diffuse, and as um, those uh, not just the 1.9 million billion people on Facebook. How many people have smartphones? A few billion, more than that. Three, four. Um, as they all get access to a doctor that can diagnose them for zero cost um, with uh, efficiency as good as the average doctor, maybe better than that, I think that, that those things are totally in the pipeline, totally happening, and that's part of our excitement. But, but I, I think you're right. I'll, these things haven't hit yet, and the pure productivity part of it hasn't been as uh, evident as what we expect to see going yep. forward. That's fair enough. I just find it interesting that we see the huge productivity growth of Microsoft and the personal computing revolution and then the entire cloud computing, entire machine learning, everything, we see no change whatsoever. So, so Eric, I just want to hit on this point that you yeah. make about GDP. That, that yeah. What you've said, and you wrote it really eloquently in Second Machine Age, that if you take something that used to be really expensive, like mm -hmm. GPS used to cost 500 bucks yeah. for Garmin, yeah. and now it's free in all right. of our cell phones, where right. self-driving cars make transportation cost yeah. half of what it does, yeah. it looks like a lowering of GDP or no change. That's right. Even though we've gotten this new value. Yeah, this is just, I mean, it, it's, it's a sad fact about GDP. You, you think that GDP is supposed to be... But let's take a really specific example. Wikipedia, we were just talking about that, replaces Encyclopedia Britannica. Wikipedia is free. How much does it contribute to GDP? Zero. Okay, tiny bit for the electricity that it takes to run the servers, but basically let's call that zero, okay? Whereas um, Encyclopedia, you know, for each person, but, but contributed a significant amount, but it's a total night and day. All those apps you have on your smartphone, you know, not just the, the camera, the video camera, 
the GPS, everything, those would have cost thousands of dollars, and they did cost thousands of dollars when they were separate a la carte items. If the, if the uh, BEA, not the BLS, but the BEA does the, does the, the GDP part of it, um, had tried to properly account for the extra value, you, know, you would have an explosion of, on the production side as well. But it's a, it's a very thorny problem, and what happens is that it just gets completely missed. Lu okay. You know, Louis C.K., the, the comedian, has a great summary of what yeah. Eric just said. He's like, everything's amazing and nobody's happy. Yeah. But, but at this, the same time, I, I'm going to get off the stage. If, if that was truly happening... Can we move on? Yeah, we're moving on. you would expect that that worker that's got instant access to the information should be more productive in whatever he is producing. Thank no, you, sir. No. Yeah. Over well, here. Let me just answer that last bit. Eric, um, <laughs> let's move on. I just got to answer this last point. No, you Sorry. don't. Yes, I do. You I don't do. have to. I have to. No, you don't understand. Let I have to. It. Three books later, because, this is how it goes. Because <laughs> the, the productivity you, you get ultimately is what the benefits you get as, as a consumer, not at what, what you're doing as a worker. And so um, it's a mistake to think that by, by producing more stuff, that automatically increases productivity. It's what you actually end up getting as, as a benefit. And so the extent mm -hmm. that this makes creates benefits for you as an end user, that is, that's the end. That's, that's the productivity. It doesn't have to make you better as a worker. Right. Over here. That was, that was a good addition. Quickly, we just have time for people in the audience. Right, okay. We'll go really quick. Well, and the we'll line is closed. Sorry, we'll, we'll lightning round it. Yeah. And then we sign books. So and then you all right? buy books. Sorry. Go on, please. Machine learning AI computers right now are extremely good at, at logic, like Boolean stuff, or perception, minimizing some loss function. Between those two things, humans do concept formations. Currently, machines don't. Mm -hmm. People you talk to, when do you foresee this kind of concept formation gap closing? And then, to me, that, that's like what opens the floodgates to AI. We don't know. <laughs> um, you're absolutely right. It's great at the, some of those perception tasks, and those are really important. That is far from everything. One of the reasons we think that there's still a lot of work to be done is that there's all those other things that machines don't do well. There are super smart people more than ever in history working to solve those. We ask them. They don't know um, when they'll make that discovery, but they're working on it. I will say in the book they have ex excellent examples of machines doing what we would think of as creativity and doing it well. Over here, sir. Earlier, uh, we talked about uh, DeepMind's uh, AlphaGo, mm -hmm. and uh, when it came online, it it went and like destroyed like all existing like human uh, masters. Well, it didn't destroy them. The first game, was, the first one was four to one, but yeah, it was yeah. Now well, it's well, when, when they turn it on online an yeah. in anonymous like yeah. master. Oh mode, yeah, yeah, yeah. More recently, then it yeah, yeah, destroyed yeah. forty two right. in a row. That's then right. it just destroyed the current master. Yes. And then uh, so then DeepMind uh, did you know they did a hundred self playing games, and then they turned it off. And they don't have any plans to turn it back on. So, so my, my question is, do you feel like the mere existence of an algorithm or, or a bot like AlphaGo reduces human dignity in terms of our not, endeavors in that area? Not one iota. Not one little bit. You know how, how Go, this, what happened to the sales of Go boards in Korea after mm -hmm. Lee Sedol lost that match? Yeah. They skyrocketed. Lee Sedol became a better Go player as a result of playing against AlphaGo. I, I fundamentally don't understand this notion that, mm -hmm. that we humans have to define ourselves by what we're best in the universe at. That just doesn't make any sense to me. The best thing yeah. that ever happened to Gary Kasparov was losing to Deep Blue. It took him a while to reach, to hit that realization. <laughs> if you know Gary, does not like to lose. Uh, but but, but, but yeah. this notion that our dignity is compromised if we lose to a machine in a game, I'm sorry, I, I, I don't share that view in the slightest. Well, what if it proves that the game is, is pointless? So, like, my son likes to 
play me tic-tac-toe, but I, I mean, if I emphasize the point to him, like, this game is pointless, your, your, your endeavor is basically... I, I would, I would lay off on the existentialism with, yeah. with a young child <laughs> as, as a general rule. But, but yeah. you know, I, I think over time we have to think about what is our place in the universe and, and how, do we, how do we evaluate that. And I think lots of people get enjoyment about playing games with each other. I, I know that I can't outrun a race car, but I still yeah. had fun doing races with my kids. And, and I'm, I still like watching the Olympics with humans racing against other humans. So I, I think it's more, more complicated, more <coughs> subtle than just saying, you know, once the machine can do it, it's no longer interesting. Right. It's manifestly not true that, you know, because we do, we do still find this interesting. Um, but there's layers upon layers of what are our ultimate motivations, and, and uh, maybe that would be a good project for us to. But to when, when things work do on get next. solved, it does change the equation because, like, I no longer play chess. I used to be first board. That changes the equation yeah. for you. It did yes. not. For, let, for, so for, let me finish. It did not. It did not change the equation for a bigger subset of people who went out and yeah. bought go boards. I, I just. Mm -hmm. Made, we, you, you're one individual. Other never, people made very different choices. No, 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 you should, no, no, you should no, take no. up Go, but we got to move on for well, the sake of time here. The other thing is, here. is there are a lot of other things that machines can't still beat you at, so I think there's no shortage of things for you to work on. <laughs> Over here, sir. Um, thank you. Um, you've highlighted uh, and drawn attention to some of the bright prospects for this uh, technology, and it's, it's uh, really encouraging to hear you being very excited about it, and I think you're hearing in the room tonight some concerns that, that folks share. Mm -hmm. What advice would you give to policymakers and or lawmakers to, on the one hand, um, encourage, facilitate, or at least not screw up the, um, the benefits. <laughs> the bar gets lowered these days, doesn't <laughs> it? Not screw up really yeah. badly, not screw up disastrously badly. <laughs> right. uh, and yet, on the other hand, to ameliorate or mitigate some of the downsides. Our colleague, Alan Blinder, is a really, really good economist, and, and his most enduring contribution might be a thing called Blinder's Law, which is really depressing. And what he noticed, he worked in Washington for a long time, is that the areas where there is the greatest consensus among economists and professional policy people are the areas where they get listened to the least. And, le and, and the, le the, the least actually happens. So it, it, the policy playbook, the smart policy playbook is really uncontroversial these days. And to keep, and to remember it, I just hum the old McDonald theme song to me, myself. And when I get to E-I-E-I-O, I go entrepreneurship, immigration, education, infrastructure, and original research, E-I-E-I-O. Uh, we're, doing, we're doing a middling to actively lousy job at all of those things right now. And it's getting worse instead of better. The administration today just announced that it was going to walk away from the very notion of a startup visa. Great, that, that's a move our enemies would make. Uh, so, the so Eric and I have written lots of policy articles. The policy playbook is not just some brave intellectual new territory. It's the fact that it's just not being done. We've been super optimistic about the technology. We're very, very concerned on the policy side. We share your concern. One of the reasons we wrote the book, one of the reasons we're having this conversation is hopefully change the national conversation so we can make some progress on the, the, those parts. But it, it, you're, you're right to be concerned, and we are too. The answer, I, the answer I heard was that you should run for office, sir. I, I should which, sir? That you should run for office. I should. That's what <laughs> I should. Exactly. Now. We'll yeah. vote for yeah. you. Yeah. Well, yeah. Sounds like you're going to listen to policy wonks. Adam. Um, bit of an axe to grind. Um, Rising I'm a, tone. I'm, I'm an intellectual property attorney. Rising tone. And I used to think that inventions were one of those things that were going to survive. And then NPR talked about, um, there was a juke deck, which is a machine-created music, which mm -hmm. people are now licensing machine-created music because humans are too expensive to license music from. Mm -hmm. And 
three recent articles just came out about uh, human-assisted invention processes. So artificial intelligence being used to assist people in inventing things. Copyrights and patents are enshrined in our Constitution as a way to encourage people to invent and create. Um, how soon before we have to remove them, copyrights and patents, because machines are doing a better job at creating and there's no point in rewarding the small human contribution left. That's my rising intonation. <laughs> Thank you, I appreciate that, Adam. I, I think it's a long, long time. I, I mean, there's no question that uh, machines are helping with invention. They've helped from the beginning, right? I mean, you know, whether it's a, you know, a microscope or whatever, there have been tools that have helped people discover and <coughs> invent things, and they're, they're becoming yeah. much more popular. But machines, you know, until we make those conceptual breakthroughs that, were, that the earlier questioner asked about, um, and, and we, you know, I don't know when that's going to happen. Um, it could be 100 years, it could be five years. Um, probably it's going to be more than that. Um, machines aren't good at this sort of more um, unstructured, long-term, complicated planning. They're great at filling out, you give them a very specified task, a very set of examples of these are dogs and these are cats, please distinguish them. But conceiving of the problem is the hardest part. There's a quote we have in the book um, from Pablo Picasso. Um, believe it or not, um, he, he was an early thinker on this. And he said, you know, computers are useless. All they do is give you answers. <laughs> 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 and and there's, there's, you know, it's funny, and, but, but, but he was ahead of his time. There's, there's a lot of truth to that, that the real value is going to be in conceiving of the problem, defining it and specifying it well enough that then maybe a machine can go and, and work through it. So we'll still ask the questions. And last question to you, sir. Uh, thank you no, no pressure. It needs to be a bang-up final question, however. Right, no disappoint. 42. Uh, thank you all for speaking. First of all, I appreciate that. Um, but I'm, I'm 26, so I, I definitely can see a lot of the, the, the previous things you're talking about. Of, I've spent way too many hours on Wikipedia and gotten a lot of joy out of that, so I can totally buy your, um, your technology thesis. But what... I've also seen over my lifetime is what you mentioned, the increasing intensification of terrible policy mistakes. Um, you know, the, the right one's not getting carried out. And so I just wanted to know what gives you optimism that the positive trend of technology is enough to overcome, you know, I, again, what I've seen of the last, since, since I'm becoming more and more of an adult is more tragic policy mistakes that we keep making. You know, we've seen this movie before, unfortunately. There, um, there have been previous periods in our nation's history where we made decisions that I, I would violently disagree with. So, you know, things go in cycles, and we should take some comfort from that. My optimism comes from the fact that technological progress, the old joke is it's the only free lunch economists believe in, it is letting us create a more, whatever word you want, abundant, prosperous, wealthy world. It, while it's doing that, it is letting us tread more lightly on the planet overall, with the huge exception that we're cooking the planet we need to stop. But we need to stipulate that over and over again. Tech progress will help us with that. Maybe not quickly enough, it'll help us with that. So tech progress is giving us some more, uh, giving us human beings more, more wealth, more prosperity, and letting us take better care of the planet. Now, the pessimism is exactly what you brought, bring up. We might fumble that future. We could do some really stupid things. Uh, and, and a couple of the recent election results uh, make me a little nervous. However, for inspiration, as always, I turn to France. 
Were, they just elected a 39-year-old guy. This is a really ossified political system. They just elected a 39-year-old guy who says, gang, we're going into the future, we're going to be an entrepreneurial state, all you machine learning geeks get over here and help us with this, and I find that awesome, right? So the, the, there's hope out there. I just wish it was a little closer to home. I, I would distinguish between two kinds of optimism. There's the unconditional optimism of, of a child, you know, uh, before Christmas, expecting the presents <laughs> to come, and it's like, I can't wait till it happens, and you just sit there and it, and it happens. And I think way too many people um, who call themselves optimists are those kind of unconditional optimists. Or for that matter, you get some unconditional pessimists, they just know it's going to be terrible. Um, I think they both make the same mistake. They both think that this, something's going to happen to us. I think the right kind of optimism is conditional optimism. And that's the optimism of the kid who's like, hey, you know, it would be cool if I had a, a tree house. And if I got some hammers and some nails, maybe got some of the kids in the neighborhood, maybe got my dad to help me, we could go and build a tree house. And then we would have a tree house. And that's the kind of optimism that we need in America, is a kind of a can-do optimism that says, we've got more powerful tools, we can change the world, but it's not going to happen automatically. And we're hoping that more people will appreciate this potential, but I'm very, very concerned it's not, certainly not going to be automatic. It's going to depend on people like you, and I'm glad you're, you're, you're here and, and, and asking those kinds of questions, and, and mm -hmm. um, not just to us, I mean asking them more fundamentally about what we can do in the world. If we make the right choices, um, we, can, we can have a much better world, and it's something we've done as a society time and time again yep. historically, so there's a track record there. But the, the thing that I would probably want to leave us the last word is just that this is not automatic. We have to be actively engaged in it. The, the, the tools are there, but it's not going to happen without our efforts. The best way to predict the future is to create it. Exactly. Yep, exactly. Thank you very much. Thank you to all of you for coming out on a beautiful thank you. June Thank night. you all. Nice. Thank you. Thanks for streaming this episode of Speakers Forum from KUOW 94.9 Seattle. Andrew McAfee and Eric Brynjolfsson are researchers at MIT. They've authored a series of books together, the latest of which is Machine Platform Crowd, Harnessing the Digital Revolution. They spoke with Microsoft computer scientist Ramez Nam at Town Hall Seattle on June 22nd. Thank you again to Sonia Harris for our recording. You can hear the full talk and Q&A on our website, kuow.org slash speakersforum. Tune in again soon.